0: Welcome to Business Trip, a podcast exploring the future of mental health and wellness. I'm Greg Kubin, alongside my co-host, Matthias Sarebrinsky. We're partners at SciMed Ventures, a venture fund investing in mental health. Some say the brain is the final biological frontier, and Ed Boyden is on a mission to decode it. Ed is a pioneer in developing tools for neuroscience through academic research and by starting companies. His work aims to reveal the fundamental mechanisms of brain function, and by doing so, he's helping to create new therapeutic strategies for neurological and psychiatric disorders. So who is Ed Boyden? Well, he runs a lab at MIT for synthetic neurobiology and is a professor across departments of neurotechnology, biological engineering, and cognitive science. He's also a leading researcher in areas of neuroscience, including optogenetics and expansion microscopy. We'll discuss these topics in today's episode, but at a high level, optogenetics uses light to control genetically edited neurons to help study brain functions in a precise way. And expansion microscopy makes tiny parts of cells much bigger using a special gel to see them better under regular microscopes. Ed has also co-founded and advised many companies. Cognito Therapeutics, for example, is a device that uses visual and audio stimulation to slow the disease progression of Alzheimer's. The company is in late-stage clinical trials. In today's episode, we chat about the differences between academia and startups. We review Ed's research and discuss its applications for mental health and brain health. And we discuss why getting new drugs approved is still so damn hard. Let's get to the episode
1: with Ed Boyd. In a previous interview, you said that mental illness conditions look very mysterious. I would love for you to explain more what you mean by that and why they are mysterious.
2: The brain is very complicated. In a cubic millimeter of our brain, you'll have you have about 100,000 about, brain cells without with about a billion connections between them. And when we have thoughts or feelings, when we sense and act, that's being mediated by these high-speed electrical signals in our brain cells and chemical communications between them. Now, in in mental illness, the changes in the brain are, if you just sort of glance at what's by eye at at the brain, you might not see anything obvious. The changes are very subtle. And so in terms of understanding what goes on in a condition like schizophrenia or bipolar, how the, the circuits of the brain change. is is very much a field that's still emerging, still in its infancy.
1: Are there any personal experiences or a particular event that inspired you to enter this field of neuroscience?
2: I was always very philosophical as a kid. I really wanted to understand the nature of existence. I just found existence to be very strange. Why do we do what we do and see what we see and think what we think? And why is the universe the way it is? I ended up leaving home when I was 14 to go to college there was a local program that let people skip years of high school and i really decided that i would like to see if we could understand and perhaps improve the, the human condition through science
0: so at 14 you went to college and you knew then that this was an area you were interested in so this is life's work for you would you say
2: <clears throat> i knew i wanted to work at the border between philosophy and science so my first research experience at this program called TAMs which is at the U- University of North Texas I worked in an origins of life group. They were trying to create DNA in a test tube from inorganic materials like clay. I transferred to a different university and ended up doing research on quantum computing. So again, at the border between the mysterious and the practical. So both the origins of life and quantum computing have proven to be very difficult problems, right? We still don't really know the origins of life and we still don't have like really good quantum computers yet. So third time's a charm, I decided to try to apply my physics and chemistry skills from these earlier experiences to the brain and uh, yeah fall of 1998 about 25 years ago decided to try to see if we could launch a uh, deeply mechanistic technology driven approach to brain science
0: if you were to fast forward to the end of your life not to get morbid but what does success look like in the work that you're doing as you think about it today well,
2: when I switched into brain science, informally, I was
0: imagining a 50-year-ish
2: plan. If you could really understand what thoughts and feelings are, you could understand what experience is, you could understand the nature of, of the mind. And yeah, if you really did that, could you then, you know, understand happiness? Could you understand meaning? Could you understand uh, a variety of uh, philosophically relevant topics?
1: It almost sounds like there's this continuum between mental illness and mental health and w- mental wellness. And some of the things you're describing now, you could argue are more in the realm of human flourishing than mental illness, right? So I'm, I'm curious if, if there, you know, you see it as this continuum. And by understanding some of the mechanistic causes of mental illness, there's something to be understood about even happiness and meaning in life.
2: That's not how I think about it, actually. The way I think about it is the core is to understand. We want to understand how the brain generates things like emotions, how the brain generates decisions. And that's what I call ground truth. I want to understand how these complex things emerge from interactions of the parts, right? And that's sort of what science is. How does a complex function emerge from the interactions of the building blocks, right? For physics, it's atoms, right? For chemistry, right? You have molecules undergoing reactions. Why should biology be any different? Then along that path, I would view the understanding and treatment of diseases as sort of natural consequences of that path. So my, my, my way of thinking about it is a little bit inverted from, from what you said.
1: We'll, we'll spend some time talking about science and mechanistic understandings or explanations, but we're trying something new today and going first into startups, and there is arguably something quite unique about you because you've been involved in a lot of companies and at the same time you have outstanding and prolific academic career. So it sounds to me or it looks to me that you enjoy both worlds. And uh, I want to ask you specifically about startups. What do you like about startups that you could say you get there that you may not get in the academic world?
2: Every problem has a natural home. And actually some of my alumni have invented a third kind of thing which they call the FRO, Focused Research Organizations. So a former student of mine and a former research scientist in the group co-invented this concept, and, and now they've started a whole bunch of them, including one that uh, a spin-out from our group, Scaling Up Brain Mapping. And uh, yeah, you know, so startups, of course, have to operate over a reasonably short time scale. If you're taking dilutive capital, then you're on a clock, right? Because that's how investment thinking works, right? There's a time course over which the investment is considered. You can't openly collaborate as seamlessly as you can in academia. But on the other hand, you can scale, right? You can hire potentially lots of people and grow in a way that academia can't. You know, and academia is the flip side. So in academia, you can chase serendipity and be very open. You're not a closed system necessarily. You can go over very long time scales because there's not an investment clock that you're trying to keep up with. Um, You don't scale as much, right? Because it's going to be a professor and some students and some staff scientists and so forth, right? There's no hierarchy. There's no way to, you know, bring in management and suddenly you go to a you know, hundred or a thousand people, right? That that doesn't happen in academia. It's such a very rare circumstances. Yeah. So I think there's a natural home for each problem and the art is to try to figure out where that home is. And again, I'm very excited that some of our alumni have then said, hey, if your problem does not have a natural home, let's invent a new home.
1: Got it. So, so there's something about urgency and scale that may be more suited for startups than for academia? Well, those I think
2: are important considerations, but maybe the most fundamental consideration is risk. If something has a true unknown, then I would be very hesitant to start a company because you don't know if you're gonna hit a brick wall six months out and what if the company is no longer the right home for the problem, right? So I tend to think in terms of what I call science risk, the fundamental risk of a problem. But if there's execution risk, if there's market risk, then maybe a startup is the right home for it. But if there's a fundamental unknown where you cannot see beyond that point at all, then maybe a startup is not the right home for such a problem. On the other hand, if you that's where the unbound exploration of academia can be quite powerful, right? And if you look at like the COVID vaccine, right, which emerged from modifications of RNA that began in academia, but there came a point where it made sense to do it in a startup. And so BioNTech and Moderna and the rest of the story is very well known um, uh, CRISPR, right? So CRISPR, uh, again, uh, a lot of the the cracking of the code was done by academics. Although the discovery, the original discovery, if I recall, was from a company. Um, and, uh, and now maybe you can argue CRISPR, um, is widely used in academia. And of course, there are many interesting companies who are pursuing therapeutics based upon CRISPR. So again, I think there's sort of a natural phase of a problem where you need serendipity, help you counter risk and then maybe there's a point where you don't need serendipity if you work hard and you're smart about it you can get the job done and so that's how i think about it foundationally is risk management
1: so so two things one is what comes up for me is that a startup may want to be closer to engineering risk versus scientific risk so in this continuum of technical risk the idea that th- th- it, it's closer to some engineering problem where arguably with more resources, it's likely that the output will be as desired versus in, in science where resources does not does not equal results by themselves. They're, there's like these inherent walls that are harder to go over.
2: Yeah, some of our most famous projects like optogenetics for controlling the bandwidth light or expansion microscopy, the world's cheapest form of nanoimaging, Those were not expensive projects. They didn't take that long in the grand scheme of things. It wasn't about the resources. It was about the insight, a deep understanding of the problem, the willingness to go out and try something that went against the countervailing winds, some fundamental unknowns, right? Because these projects really broke new ground and and were very different from anything that came before. And and those those are really great academic uh, projects. But now once you know that something works, now some of these things are in human trials and so forth, but that makes sense to do it in a company because you need the scale that supports a human trial and you have the the thing you need, right? The academics did their job and now you need people who can take it through regulatory and reimbursement.
1: I'm curious if you can share more about your own decision process when you decided to get involved or when you decide to get involved with a specific company, what what is it that thing that's unique that gets you excited? Because my guess is that you have way more opportunities than the ones that you say yes to you? It's a good question. Yeah, I actually get
2: involved with fairly few companies, in part because I'm very excited about the research we're doing in, in the lab here at MIT. So I really want to maybe even be a little bit less entrepreneurial in the years to come because I really want to focus on some doing some extremely deep science. But in the past, again, I feel like every problem has a natural home. And so similarly, do I have a role or not? So if there's a company where me being part of it will give a positive contribution to human health, hey, let's consider it. Uh, I'm I'm not a fan of being added to a company just to have my name on it. I don't think that's a good use of of my time, right? I really want to make contributions to things.
0: And I guess the second part of that question is, how do you think about the commercial potential for a company?
2: You kind of have to have one primary goal. goal that often I'm considering is how do we help as many people as we can? And... That often means that a technology of many lives. So let's take optogenetics, right? Our technology for controlling the brain with light. In academia and nonprofits, we gave that technology away basically for free. There's a nonprofit called AdGene. They've distributed tens of thousands of shipments of molecules that came out of our group all over the world. And they charge a nominal fee, but it's basically at cost. There's no profit being made. Now, On the other hand, if you want somebody to spend a lot of money and take a molecule through clinical trials, which could be very expensive, then there has to be an alignment of incentives. And so then a company could be formed that would be able to channel investment, align incentives to investors, and so forth. And so for me, it's all about incentive alignment. If you want a technology to have its effect, what is the right incentive alignment for it to occur? And sometimes that might mean giving it away, right? It might mean starting no company. And there are examples of technologies or group has developed, we just give it away for free, and that's what we decided the way to impact the world for the better was. That's how I think about things. Uh, so it's not necessarily the way a VC might think about things, but what I do try to think about is how to maximize the positive impact on human health and well-being.
0: Mm-hmm. So I guess to dig a little deeper on the incentive alignment as it pertains to a commercial application or technology, Is another way of thinking about that, like, okay, if we actually commercialize, this is a product or solution that A, can be impactful in helping human health, but B, we know that providers may uh, be incentivized to start offering this to their patients as a way to get distribution out because it may be a profitable tool for them. And therefore it's an effective way to actually get it, get distribution. Would that be like the right way of thinking about it? It's a good question. The
2: incentives have to all be aligned, right? For something to take off medically, it has to pass, of course, medical muster. The payers have to want to pay for it. The doctors who will, in the end, be looking at their patient and trying to say what's best for them, they will make that judgment in that moment, right? So the incentives have to be aligned uh, all throughout. And the hope, of course, is that it delivers the maximum positive impact for human health. That's what motivates me. And uh, and I think if one can do that, then it becomes a genuine alignment, right? And, and that also uh, sort of drives with how we work, right? We begin in academia with the idea. Off it's created before there's any business interest of any kind, right? I don't know. We have a molecule that's in human trials for treating blindness. The first paper on a human patient was published summer 2020. We began the overall thinking that led to this quest in the year 2000. So that's two decades. The first experiments in the general class of this arena was in 2004, 16 years earlier. The actual molecule that went into the people was published in 2014, six years earlier. I think mean, you get the picture, right? The way that our group works is we really want to get ground truth understanding and repair of the body, uh, is a, a longer time scale. Um, but it's based upon sort of a, a very deep desire to. Yeah, deconstruct and understand what's going on and then to repair it in the correct way. That does mean at some point, this is partly why you know, when we start a company, um, the first thing to do, of course, is to make sure that company, uh, which I can't uh, get too involved with because I have my day job at MIT and, and Howard Hughes Medical Institute and so forth, the company will need a good CEO and a good team and, and some of these decisions are going to have to be made by them. Uh, there's a big time gap between the original invention and discovery and the ultimate deployment
1: well, well a couple of things well, it came to mind that because you've been involved with companies and and uh, or co-founded companies or advice companies and you've been doing that for a while you may have your own algorithm that you have or that you figured out around the What are green flags and what are red flags about companies that obviously are undertaking uh, technical risk? Because those are the companies that you're mostly involved with. So can you share any heuristics or things that at least in your own book uh, are good things and which things are like, you know what, this is actually not the way to build a company or not to get involved?
2: Yeah, I often get asked to do like due diligence on a company or give my opinion on companies in the biomedical space. The most important thing that I think about when asked to think about a company, whether it's when I'm going to start, maybe, or somebody else's, is the data. Because there is no like foundational theory of all of biology. So if I design a computer chip in software, where you can simulate it in the computer, and then maybe a chip-making plant will go make that computer chip, and it's pretty darn guaranteed that it's going to work because physics is really well understood and you can create something in design space and then realize it, and it's just going to work. You can simulate mechanical things. You can simulate electronic things. Now, in biology, of course, that's not the case. So you can design a drug. You can test it against the receptor. You can try it out on the cell type of interest. And who knows? Maybe when you chronically administer it in a human trial, it affects some other organ system you never even thought about, right? Because there is no overarching ground truth theory of biology, the same way that physics, you can be very accurate in a computer or computer science, mechanical engineering. So these disciplines where the math can capture a lot of the complexity, right? Uh, But biology is not there yet. So the thing that I often uh, focus most on is the data, because without the data, the idea could have a fatal flaw, right? So I have very high standards for thinking about whether something will fly,
0: the opposite end of that spectrum would be like intuition. It's less intuitive and more data-driven in how you think about it.
2: When it comes to biomedical conclusion about a therapy or whatnot or a diagnostic, I think the data are...
0: But but sometimes it's so early. I guess th- the point is by the time it's commercializing, there's enough data there that you can get behind, right? Hopefully, yeah.
2: But, but often um, people do ask me to th- comment on companies where they don't have a lot of data. And my usual response is, well, my opinion shouldn't matter because all that matters is the data. That's sort of my standard reply in such cases. I have a lot of good intuitions about technology. So, and our technologies are based upon things like physics and chemistry. But in biology, I do worry that if you look at the the history of biology and medicine, um, intuition has not always gone well. The data is really what you should trust the most, right?
1: One when- Eternal question is this idea, will biology one day will be more predictable or fully predictable in, in ways that a computer systems may be? And, and you said we're not there yet. I guess it's an impossible question, but I truly wonder if that's something we'll see in our lifetime.
2: Yeah. Well, it really is my goal. Can we make biology a mature science? You know, the same way that physics, at least on Earth's surface, was pretty mature, right? You can design a microchip or a laser or all sorts of things using the first principles nature of physics, right? So that's one reason why my academic group has as one of its core missions, the observation and control of biological systems. We want to understand how the whole system works in terms of its building blocks. If you did, that potentially someday, it might take a while, but someday could lead to what you might call an understanding of the system, right? You would know the parts and how they work together. If it's broken, you could know then where to to intervene to fix it. And so in biology, in physics, you have a very small number of things, electrons, protons, that kind of stuff. In chemistry, you have a, a larger number of things, but not that many. Carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, a handful of things in a typical chemical system. In biology, you have a lot of things, right? The human genome has, what, 30,000 or so genes, who and they encode for who knows how many biomoleons, how many cell types are there in the human body. We don't even know how many cell types there are, right? Thousands probably, right? Maybe more. So I think that's what the you know, what we're seeing here is if you look at the sciences from physics to chemistry to biology, you are having more and more building blocks and more and more ways that they interact. But if you had that list of building blocks and how they interact and understood them, I don't see a fundamental reason why you couldn't then make it into a more predictable science.
1: That's awesome. I I love this idea of uh, biology not being a mature science. Um, which makes it more exciting, right? Because I I guess you want to be in a place that's not mature.
2: Yeah, if you're smart and you work hard, something will work, right? In terms of the science risk, right? Maybe there's still execution risk and market risk that you cannot fully anticipate. And so you can argue, you know, in many parts of, of computer science, they've crossed that threshold. You know, I don't think it's a coincidence. If you look at the biggest companies on earth, like Microsoft and Apple, they were all started by college dropouts, right? Facebook was started by a college dropout. Google was started by grad school dropouts. Then look at that. I don't think that's a coincidence, right? In biology and medicine, I don't think you see the same pattern. It's hard to think of a single biomedical revolution that was led by a company started by college dropouts. I'm, I'm struggling to think of a single one, actually. And I think that's not a coincidence. There's science risk in biomedicine. It's a very long process. It's expensive. So yeah, I think one way that's fun to think about is, you know, could you make biology and medicine into the kind of field where a college dropout could start a company, that would be one uh, sign that you have de-risked the science, right? You've made it into a, a more predictable science.
0: Interesting. Hmm. It's making me think about like the biology textbooks in schools should have a lot more asterisks than they do. What do you mean by that? If there's still not a full understanding, if the fact, if there are not the ground truths that are understood yet then it's possible that a lot of what we think we may know may not actually end up being. But that is the scientific method and process, I would say, that we generally follow across disciplines, right? I think we don't know anywhere close to what we need to know. I mean, for a lot
2: of diseases, our understanding is quite poor. You know, infectious diseases where outside agents attack our body, that's been the great success story of medicine, right? vaccines to fight COVID, antibiotics to fight the bubonic plague. If the invader is very different from us, we can kill it, right? Because it's different from us. It looks so different. It's not so hard to destroy. The problem, though, is a lot of the really tough diseases, Alzheimer's disease, autoimmune conditions, the problem is us, right? And and so the heart of the matter is really trying to understand what is that difference. There's so many molecules, there's so many cell types, Even getting all the data to characterize it is difficult. And that's partly why our group has focused so much on technologies for seeing everything going on in a biological system and for controlling what's going on in the biological system. If we can make a really good map of all the parts and how they work together, you could argue that would be one of the, maybe not the only, but one of the the foundational data sets that you could use to try to solve these problems.
1: Yeah, so that's perfect kind of segue. For discussing more of the science part, when I think of your body of work, there are these two very big and discrete technologies that stand out, which are optogenetics and expansion microscopy. First, I have a a question about applicability. And I'm curious if you, because in theory would require gene therapy in humans, I'm curious if you think optogenetics will actually have an application in mental health in humans. Well, people
2: are already using optogenetics in animal models of different brain conditions to understand the principles of how you might repair uh, the brain or improve the brain. Well, you would need to know where in the brain to put the light-sensitive molecules. And so that's a big question, right? Much of neuroscience is done with mouse models that capture some part or symptom or angle on a let's say a brain disease, for example, how do you translate the mouse brain into the exact location of the human brain? So that's a uh, thing that would have to be thought out. There are several hundred thousand people who have neural stimulators implanted in them. So over, I I think about over a hundred thousand people have deep brain stimulators for movement disorders like Parkinson's disease. And then hundreds of thousands of people have cochlear implants to help them hear if they've lost their ability to capture sound and drive their auditory nerves. There is precedent for invasive implants helping hundreds of thousands of people. The scientific justification would be one of the things that we needed. You have to know where to put the gene therapy. Um, the second thing, of course, is that these genes for optogenetics come from bacteria and algae and other creatures. You need the data. The clinical trials, do they show that these techniques are safe? And a couple of the molecules that that our group discovered have have begun to be used in human trials uh, for blindness over the last many years. So I think a lot of people are keeping their eye on these trials. These molecules look safe in the human eye. Maybe a lot more interest will pour in. Of course, there are no guarantees. All that matters is the data, as we were commenting on earlier. One can imagine that some molecules might be more safe some molecules might be less safe how those data go will determine what happens in terms of the brain itself right so there are a lot of uh of uh unknowns both at the scientific level and at the toxicology level and so forth that only empirical data could address and so uh yeah i think one has to see how it goes again there's a theory of biology so we cannot predict these things in advance really
0: Interesting because I've seen the footage of mice with the light that's basically implanted into their head from outside. And so, what you're saying, what's interesting to me, is this idea that it could just be that there could be an implant that basically is able to flicker the light to then activate the cascade effect in order to then have the desired result. I think that the distinction here is what you're saying is that there's a permanent or i guess it could be replaceable but it's within the brain that then has the ability to use light to then control the genetically edited neurons within the brain
2: um well so now we're talking about the domain of electronics light sources power cables that's a fairly mature field so one could design the electronics to match the nature of the problem right there might be some situations where you could have Part of external, some situations where it's internal, I, th- I think that's a problem-specific question you're asking. I mean, there's some examples where it might even be non-invasive, right? So in the situation with blindness, the molecules put into the eye, one team has external goggles, right? The goggles take pictures of the world, and then like a projector, they send the the movies of the world onto the, the back of the eye, the retina. So there, there's no implanted electronics. But there is, a, I've heard of a second company, which is talking publicly about putting the electronics inside the eye. So there could be pros and cons of these different approaches. And again, what makes it a good solution for a given problem might depend upon the, the really detailed nature of the problem, right? And we're talking about human factor and condition-driven design, right? And thinking backwards from the problem, right? But yeah, you can imagine all sorts of different uh, solutions that are customized for the nature of the problem at hand.
1: Yeah, I'm kind of stuck with what Greg brought up about intuition. And, and I just want to go over that a little bit more deeply. How, how do you think of this idea of follow the data and uh, basically data will tell and, and the leaps of faith, or, or maybe you don't even think that way, uh, but I'm, I'm curious on, on your decision process and uh, where these like leaps of faith and, and intuition come more uh, to play. Well, I think intuition
2: can be useful if the intuitions capture the essence of what you're trying to solve, right? So in chemistry or physics, fields that I trained in earlier in my life, I think you can get very good intuition. In physics, there's a fairly small number of rules. And so when you look at a complex system, you can intuit it, maybe because the human mind is not so bad at encapsulating those rules, right? Chemistry is a bit more complicated. But in biology, there's, let's say there's 30,000 genes in the human genome, and, let's, and they encode for hundreds of thousands or millions of molecules. Suppose you are designing a drug. How can you have intuition for whether it will affect every single... You know, how do you know for sure whether it's going to affect all of those different molecules, right? Maybe you can have some general intuitions, right? But then you argue you know, that's like a, more of a chemical intuition, right? But at the biological systems level, the nature of the body... Does anybody really have very good intuition of the physiology of the overall body down to its molecular scale? Yeah, certainly I don't. If you look at clinical trial failures for brain therapies, I think clinical trial failure rate is well over 90%, right? And those are for fairly mature scientific topics, right? Things that made it out of the lab and into the clinical trial in the first place, right? Which means that there already was some preclinical justification, maybe some animal data. And even after all that, the failure rate is nearly 100%, but that's after, let's say, a decade of work and billions of dollars have been poured into it, right?
1: One company that Greg and I invested a while back, uh, a few years ago, the chief science officer was, uh, well, he, w- he wouldn't say this about himself, but people would introduce him as an intuitive chemist. And I always liked this definition of someone, an intuitive chemist. And I think it, it may or, or may not, but I think it's aligned to a little bit to what you said, that to a certain degree, chemistry may have, there may be more intuition there, but once you move from chemistry to biological systems, things may be (laughs) a lot more complex.
2: Yeah, I mean, and all of our techniques have a component in a classical science where one can have intuition. Um, Or there's a a chemical cofactor called all transretinal that is required for the optogenetic molecules to work. Turns out the mammalian brain, the mammalian body contains that chemical. That's not true for fruit flies. That's not true for worms. We don't know for sure why this is the case, right? But at the biological systems level, our body makes that for some reason or it's just there Maybe and the oxygen molecules could use it. If that wasn't true, maybe optogenetics would have been more of a, a footnote, right? Because you'd have to load the body full of this exogenous chemical, which probably most people don't want it to do, so...
0: I was just thinking about like Schrodinger's cat and (laughs) it's an abstract idea that we don't need to go down that road, but it's just this idea that like we haven't been able to see multiple things simultaneously and who knows what we'll actually find. So I'm excited to see what you discover.
2: Yeah, this is what I like to call real science. We don't know what we're going to find, but that's often where revolutions can begin, right? Suppose you want to edit the genome. CRISPR was originally found in yogurt, right? So if somebody walked into the lab not knowing anything else and wanted to edit the genome, would they start thinking about yogurt? Probably not, right? And, and the history of biology is full of such surprises. You know, uh, PCR, maybe the most run reaction in all of biology and medicine at this point. The key enzyme was found in Yellowstone hot springs. So again, the solution of a problem often comes from a very different source from where the problem originated.
1: So moving on a little bit to... to... Talk about mental health and psychiatry in particular. First of all, you have this interesting framework of invent new technologies and tools, discover things about biology aided by these tools, design treatments and applications, and then deploy, arguably, in the real world of this. So with this deployment part has happened in a lot of different brain-based diseases like Alzheimer's, for example. I'm curious if there's something specific about mental health or psychiatry that is especially interesting to you? Let's say the difference between depression and Alzheimer's. And you kind of alluded to this idea that on a physiological level, you can see what Alzheimer's does to the brain, but it's harder to identify that with depression. Do you have any particular interest in psychiatry? from this perspective, or to use all kind of brain-based diseases?
2: Oh, I'm interested in everything for two obvious reasons. Uh, One is that there's a lot of human suffering to be alleviated. So we have both a moral imperative and the technological uh, underpinnings to try to go after that. And the second, of course, in psychiatry, there are lots of changes in the brain uh, that do affect things that are philosophically puzzling, like the nature of feeling, the nature of thought. And so a lot of our technologies are being used in those spaces. It's very early days. Often the changes in the brain in a psychiatric situation can be quite subtle in terms of changes in wiring or molecular organization and so forth. And that's exactly why I think our tools might be able to help, right? If you can make a map and understand at a very detailed level what is changing, then maybe you could assist in a more precise and constructive way.
1: Yeah, As you said, your interest in philosophy, it may be that also these ideas of happiness and feelings that are arguably more discussed in psychiatry than in neurology scratch that philosophical itch to a certain degree.
2: Well, maybe one way to think about it is the nature of the change. In psychiatry, sometimes the changes can be very subtle in the sense that they might affect certain aspects of internal state or behavior and not others, right? But sometimes there also are links between different aspects of internal state or behavior that can be intriguing. And there are lots of couplings between neurology and psychiatry. The circuits that are involved you know, are often the same circuits are linked to each other in, with specific pathways. But in neurology, if we think about Alzheimer's or Parkinson's disease or so forth, there's usually some pretty obvious cell death, cell pathology that you can see at the gross level, all Alzheimer's, of course, you have atrophy of the overall uh, architecture of the brain, and then the psychiatry, when the changes in the brain circuitry are can be quite subtle, right? So both at the behavioral and internal state level, and also at the neural level, I think there are uh, changes in, in degree that are can be quite quite daunting in terms of the understanding, um, and and also then once you have an understanding, what do you do about it? Because I don't know, imagine a disease where a bunch of cells die. If you find out how to keep them alive, that might be enough. But if you have a change in the brain, which causes a rewiring of many pathways, can you unwire them? Can you change those pathways? That becomes a, a scientific question in its own right, right?
0: How do you think about the non-physiological issues with mental health? Stuff like childhood adverse events or trauma in the psychedelic space for example there's a lot of discussion about that role within therapy so how do you think about it
2: yeah good question but maybe a better question for a person who is more expert in that so i'm an engineer i trained in chemistry and physics and electrical engineering and so we build the technologies like the optogenetic tools or the expansion microscopy and so forth Uh, But I'm not an MD. I I don't have formal psychiatric or neurological training. And so when it comes to considerations like that, what I prefer to do is to really partner with experts in those domains. What we try to do is to have co-advising. So when somebody joins the group, they might work with me on the technology, but then with an expert on autism or an expert on Alzheimer's or an expert on Parkinson's and so forth. And that way we can have that perspective.
0: What it sounds like I'm inferring then is you are open to the fact that modalities that are not just biological, biologically driven may actually be supportive in therapeutic treatments. I consider them to be biologically driven. Cognitive behavioral therapy has past clinical trials, right? I'll give
2: you an example of a technology that I was involved with, and still am. My collaborator, Li Wei Tsai, and I worked on a project. Our group provided technology. Her group led the science Originally, they used optogenetics to show that if you drive the brain 40 times a second in Alzheimer's model mice, the brain gets cleaned up. And the teams then went on to show, of course, optogenetics is a gene therapy. Gene therapies do pose inherent risk and expense. And so if you could do it without a gene therapy, that, of course, would be preferred, all other things being equal, of course. And so the teams under Leeway's Wei's leadership went on to show that you could get the same 40 hertz great activity by having a movie, basically watching a flickering light and hearing a clicking sound. So now we're in the domains of sight and sound, right? Uh, Maybe not so different thematically from uh, other sensations that we're going to incur. But, you know, I think things that enter our body through our eyes and ears are those are having biological effects. If one does have a talk therapy or a psychotherapy that has powerful utility, Why isn't that a biological effect? And I would be surprised if a lot of them do work on very specific pathways. In fact, people have done human brain imaging of people who have undergone psychotherapeutic approaches, and you can see specific changes in specific brain circuits.
1: And um, by the way, um, on this idea of uh, brain entrainment with 40 Hertz for Alzheimer's, inspired in this work, I've recently seen preclinical work with Different frequencies like 60 hertz in the treatment of depression or depressive like symptoms in mice. So, uh, really interesting the ramifications of even brain entrainment for not just neurology, but even psychiatry.
2: Yeah, let's learn more about it. Uh, I mean, one way to look at it is that, you know, the brain being a Computational system of a certain kind, right? Of course it runs on chemicals, right? I sometimes try to think of the brain as a computer science system that runs on chemicals. Now you could try to address a condition of the brain through a chemical, or if you can cause the brain through its electrical processing to recapitulate that same effect, you might have multiple ways of addressing a concern, right? And Yeah, there there can be a lot of ways to go in terms of understanding what is going on in the brain uh, at the electrical level. But those electrical effects, of course, are going to have molecular and chemical downstream impacts. When you drive neurons, maybe even through things that we see or hear, they're going to release chemicals. That's what they do.
0: Yeah. One point of what you said before, which got me thinking, was with the MDMA therapy studies that have been done, I've actually seen some of the imaging that shows the memories that people who have PTSD Become that they get reconsolidated via the hippocampus, and you can actually see the difference in the brain before or after the actual talk therapy portion. Very cool. Yeah, I personally love a form of talk therapy called internal
2: family systems. Have you heard of this?
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. IFS.
2: Yeah, I think this is extremely interesting, and I use that on myself all the time. The idea is that there are parts of your mind, and if a part is troubling you, then you can express love and gratitude to it and there are all sorts of other processes that you can incur that are probably too much detail for this podcast but yeah it's a very powerful way of, of finding parts of the mind that may not be making you feel good or making you do what you want to do and helping them become more allied and I think it's an extremely powerful methodology and i'm very intrigued by what's going on biochemically
1: Cool. Well, so a question that's a little uh, kind of a different topic, but I've seen now a few of your talks and lectures, and it seems to me that you pay attention to storytelling for the work you do. Like the way that you explain your work has this literal, like poetic component of storytelling. Number one, (laughs) I disagree with this, but in case you put uh, thinking into this, I'm curious to get a little bit more under, see a little bit more under the hood of how you think of storytelling, if you think about it, and if this changed over time for you.
2: It's interesting, yeah. I actually do spend a lot of time thinking about how to talk about the science and the technology. Strangely enough, I don't think of it as storytelling, though. I think of it as finding the inner truth of what's really there. In some ways, it's carving away all that's away, and it's outside of that truth, so we can focus on it. I don't. Uh, whereas I, I said this where storytelling sounds like adding on, but maybe that's an artificial distinction. But yeah, I do spend a lot of time trying to find the inner truth of what's there, because if you can communicate it clearly, first of all, that will help people use the technology. And if we're in a very interdisciplinary field, right? Chemistry, physics, electrical engineering, biology, basically all the sciences, more or less, in some flavor. And so you have to communicate it in terms that are simultaneously extremely simple and clear, but completely factually accurate. And that's challenging. And so when I started the group, I had, again, all the disciplines of science in some flavor are being represented in some way. And you have to get everybody to work together, right? You have to collaborate with people. And so I think very clear communication is at the core of neuroengineering, because otherwise it's just not going to work. Yeah, so you, I guess you could call it storytelling. Again, I mentally think of it more about finding the inner truth, the core essence of what is there. I find that a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, well, when we think about storytelling a lot with the companies that we invest, which are most of them very kind of science focused and science heavy, because, and and I personally like this term storytelling, because that's the original way that humans learned from one generation, from one person to the other one. So it seems to me that we are very attuned to learning through stories. And so with I think a lot about, okay, what is the story we're telling here? And that may be the most effective way at communicating something to someone else.
2: Yeah, storytelling is important. But one of my hopes, of course, is that if we do understand the mind, we also can understand how to overcome this potential Downside of storytelling, which is that it can be full of illusions that tap into things that might not be always uh, what we want.
1: There's a lot of discussions about transhumanism, and, and a lot of transhumanists have this idea of th- that <laughs> Homo sapiens will not be the ones that overcome some of these biases. And I don't fully buy into that. I, th- I think we we can overcome some of those biases, but it's also very ingrained in our own nature.
2: I think that if you look at what psychology and neuroscience and neurotechnology are headed, it is towards the understanding of the human mind. It's hard to predict beyond it because it might depend on what you find. Yeah, And there have been several such points in biology history. Once you know the genetic code, that sets you down one path, where biology now leads to recombinant DNA and cloning of genes and all sorts of stuff. But if people found out that the genetic code was much more complicated maybe that, all that entire history that has become much of modern biology and medicine would not have happened. Maybe, I don't know, maybe we'd have all gone the, down the path of talk therapy. Maybe we'd have talk therapies for diseases that we currently treat with chemicals. You know, it, it, there's these points that what you know I like to call real science, where it's very hard to see beyond.
1: Fascinating.
0: Okay, so we like to end our interviews with rapid fire. doesn't need to be the whole picture, or it could just, let's say, in a tweet. Okay. The first question is you're working in many areas. Do you have any hobbies outside of work?
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. I have two kids. Um, uh, and I spend a lot of time with them. Uh, my daughter and I are going to go skiing on Saturday and yeah, my son and I, uh, do lots of activities as a family. Um, yeah, I like to travel, um, and see new places and meet interesting people. And when I have time, I like to to write and, and read and, uh, Yeah, I like to create things, um, mostly with my kids now, but we'll create art or that kind of thing at home.
0: Mm. Next question. Do you think it's possible that humans have a soul that's not located in their brain or body?
2: Well, anything's possible. I'm very data-driven. I I want to see data. And uh, we cannot measure subjective experience currently, right? When I feel a feeling, I have this white cup in my hand, and I'm telling you I see it, you cannot analyze that subjective experience directly. In fact, maybe I'm just a robot with chat GPT installed and the real Ed Boyd is somewhere else having a martini somewhere, right? We cannot yet analyze the subjective component of consciousness. So, um, yeah, so I guess one of the questions is, you know, is there a way to tackle this problem scientifically? It's quite possible. But, yeah, currently nobody has solved that.
1: What's one book that everyone should read about neuroscience?
2: that's an easy one. One of my favorite books is called Time, Love, Memory. It's about the beginnings of the genetics of neuroscience. And it's just a fun book to read by Jonathan Weiner about this quirky physicist who launched modern behavioral genetics. And I found the book very inspiring personally as a physicist who transitioned into biology myself. I think it comes with lots of lessons, but it also was was a very wonderful depiction of a line of thinking and a person who set the stage for the modern linkage all the way between molecules that make us up and the most sophisticated things that we do.
0: Two more questions. Have you ever studied dreams? Let's see.
2: Well, my, my work is much more on the technology side than on the application side. Uh, but people have used our tools to look at things like sleep and wakefulness. Emery Brown here at MIT and, and some of his collaborators at Harvard, um, you know, they, they showed that they could take uh, an animal that was anesthetized and by activating certain neurons in the brain, they could wake it up. So certainly our tools have been used to study things within that metaspace.
1: Yeah. Uh, last question. What is the most profound and potentially unexpected insight you've gained from your work?
2: I think I've gained a lot of insights into how to lead and mentor scientists. And that's sometimes from trial and error, sometimes from thinking about leadership. But I'm very excited about how uh, a lot of our alumni have gone on to try to change how science is done at the structural level. Some of our alumni are creating new kinds of science organization, for example. Yeah, so I think that's something that I didn't walk in with, right? It's not like you go and get CEO training or an MBA and then they let you become a science professor. I think uh, some of this probably arose just from conversations with my parents, personal experience, of course, trial and error as being a professor. But I think it's very exciting to think about how you know how leadership management and mentorship you know, can help Create a field or revolutionize how things are done, and how those revolutions, how things are done, can then feed into actual innovations.
0: Super cool, Ed. Thank you. <laughs> no. Great, that was fun. This is Business Trip, a podcast exploring the future of mental health and wellness. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Simed Ventures, and if you're building a company in frontier mental health. Hit us up at high at which you can find in the show notes. I'm Greg Kubin, and my co-host is Matthias Sarebrinski. Our editor is Jonathan Davis, with production led by Caitlin Nair. Sound design and engineering came from Nico Ray. Our theme music is by Dorian Love, and additional credits are in the show notes. This is Business Trip. Thanks for tripping with us. We'll see you next time.